church. So this series, um, trying to put it in a little bigger context, um, you know, we're, we're in an age, like every 500 years, Phyllis Tickle says that, you know, the major traditions go through a rummage sale, and we're in one of those rummage sales. Every major thought or faith tradition or religious tradition seems to be in a period of um, reformation or in need of reformation. Obviously, we feel it in Christianity, uh, but it's happening in Judaism. It's happening in Islam. It's happening in the Eastern traditions. It's, it's happening in the Western secular tradition. If you read the literature, um, you know, the secular tradition is like, oh, let's get out of all this religious stuff and, and be secular. And like, well, but, but what's the heritage of secularism? You know, there's genocides in secularism. You know, the Soviet Union was a secular state, secular state and Mao was China and Pol Pot and Cambodia. So it's like, the, the problem is humanity in all of our traditions needs reformation. And um, what we're doing in the 12-step series, 12 Steps for Anyone, is we're trying to take a look at places where like, the core, um, the working core of the Jesus tradition um, can actually be seen stripped of some of the more corrupting influences of that tradition. And I think Alcoholics Anonymous is actually a great example in history of, of just that thing. And it was, it was the Judeo-Christian tradition that, that gave rise uh, philosophically to the um, 12 steps of AA. It's got a little, uh, you all, you got a little... Uh, you know, bling bling when you came in here, um, this little uh, card of this uh, serenity prayer, which is uh, a prayer that was composed by Reinhold Niebuhr, who's a Christian theologian of the 20th century, Martin Luther King's, one of Martin Luther King's influences, as well as uh, Barack Obama. Uh, the uh, front of the card is the most common use of the serenity prayer in the 12 steps. The inside of the card has the longer version that comes from Reinhold uh, Niebuhr, so you can uh, take that and Enjoy that if you like and use it. It's a, it's a powerful, powerful prayer. So let's look at the, at the 12. What, what the heck? Let, let me just read the uh, step 7, 8, and 9 in context. Starting with step 1, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol or whatever it might be, that our lives had become unmanageable. Step 2, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. Step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of our spouse. No, of ourselves. Uh, you know, sometimes you, you know, and doesn't come out there, right? Um, step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Step seven, humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. Step eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Step nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. So step seven introduces a really powerful spirituality word in the 12 steps that underlies the entire project of the 12 steps. It's the word humbly, humbly ask him, God, to remove 
our shortcomings. I've, I, I've been enjoying the Urban Dictionary lately when I look up, look up a word. And there's just wisdom in there. I don't know who does the Urban Dictionary, but I like the Urban Dictionary suddenly. True humility is to recognize your value and others' values while looking up. This is something fundamental about the posture of humility. We're looking up, not down, to serve others and to be for their good as well as our own. It is to have a realistic appreciation of your strengths, but also of your weaknesses. To real, I love this, to realize how much more there is than who we are. You know, like when you've been totally absorbed with yourself and your issues and your stuff and all of a sudden like you're very big and the rest of the world is this shrunk and, and um, that's, a, that's a kind of a hell experience, isn't it? And humility is the pathway out. So in, in AA spirituality, humility is absolutely the doorway to serenity. And serenity is the key to sanity or sobriety. So to recognize a higher power is to embrace a lower position in relation to that power. I know this is pretty complicated stuff I'm laying down here for, for you, but it's, it's absolutely um, something that we grapple with. Um, who are we in relation to a higher power? We are in a lower position. And it turns out this unlocks some spiritual riches. This allows us to accept the fact that we're not in control of everything. Um, if God is God, then we are not. And everything looks different. Um, the spiritual practice of humility is what? It's gratitude. Humility, of course, in English and in the Hebrew language is related to two other words. It's related to human and it's related to hummus or humus topsoil, dirt, the thing, stuff, things you grow out of. The Hebrew picture of humility, right at the beginning of the Bible, the second creation story in Genesis 2, the non-gendered human, Adam, is molded by Yahweh. It's the introduction of Yahweh in Genesis, out of dirt, and then Yahweh breathes a breath into the human, and the human becomes a nefesh, a living soul. So to be a human is to stand between the dirt and the divine. So humility is part of our very nature and being, and I think it always will be part of our nature and being. The spiritual move of step seven, humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. It's so counterintuitive. You know, our, our intuitive move in the face of our shortcomings, once we've faced them, is to like screw up our self-improvement energy, you know, superpower. Forgetting that we, we tried that many times and it didn't work. If it would have worked, it would have worked, you know, 12 years ago. Um, instead, the spiritual move of step seven is to relax into God. Asking. Asking is a function of humility for God to remove our shortcomings. So if you, if you actually just sit with the wording of step seven, you'll see that it offends you. It's like, you're, it, it offends your moralistic side. Like, they're my shortcomings. I should fix them. You know, I, I should take responsibility. And yet, this is totally counterintuitive. We ask God humbly to remove our shortcomings. 
Um, there's a, we, our, our reading, didn't Bella do a great job in the yeah. reading today? And she read uh, Psalm 1. So the book of Psalms is, is really the most uh, beloved book of the Bible in virtually every tradition. Um, and I, I want to read to you Psalm 119, verse 176. So this is the last verse of the longest psalm in the Bible. It's also the longest uh, chapter in the Bible, just 119 alone. It goes on and on and on. So by the time you're at the end, verse 176, you're ready and you've been prepared. And this is it. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Search for your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. To me, this is like step, step seven. It's, it's like AA humility in verse form. So uh, uh, think about the way that we tend to browbeat ourselves when we're facing our faults. Like you've, you've surely seen John Candy interviewing um, Paul McCartney on Saturday Night Live. It was like years ago when John Kennedy was, Candy was still alive. He interviews in, in real life on the show Paul McCartney and the, 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 you know, the shtick of the thing is that he's totally awed by the celebrity and fame of Paul McCartney and he's totally nervous as John Candy alone can be and he's asking questions that just as soon as they come out of his mouth he realizes what a stupid question and how he's looking like a fool and what does he do in that skit? He's just like literally browbeating himself. That's where we get the word browbeating. It's like the moralistic approach to our faults. If we could only just, oh, stop doing it, stop that. And it's a hilarious skit. And there's something deeply real in it, in John Candy's uh, psyche coming out in that skit. It's kind of fierce in its own way. Um, but this image is, is completely different than that. And there's no browbeating in the image of, I have gone astray, like a lost sheep. Seek out for your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Um, the thing about being lost is you can't find yourself. Like, I, I, I have the gift of being lost because of my... You, you probably noticed I can be a little bit spacey sometimes. And there are times when I'm, like, not that aware of my physical surroundings. This happens sometimes when I'm driving. And I'm like, where am I going again? And... And where am I now? And how could I possibly get there? I'll have, the, I'll have these thoughts as I'm musing on some other thing. And this is not a function of age. I did this in my 20s as much as I do it now. But I can remember two times getting lost. One is when I was a child at Federal's department store. And suddenly I, my, I, I, I must have been like six years old or five or four, or old enough to have a memory. And some ni nice lady, a clerk, came up to me and, are you lost? And I'm I was so lost, I didn't know I was lost. That's how disoriented I was. And she picked me up and she put me on the, you know, the glass counters of those old department stores. And she called on the phone and she got you know, the announcement going. There's a little kid here. He's a cute little guy. Uh, his name is Kenny. And will please come and claim Kenny. And I just sat there and I just waited for my mother to come, search me out and find me. It was just a, a situation of complete dependence. A little bit later, I got lost in the bathroom. Now, how many of you people have heard me talk, tell the story of getting lost in the bathroom? I would like to ask, there's not that many. I would like to ask your specific permission 
to share this story once again with all these dear people. Okay. So in, in my uh, previous house, it was a large house. We had five kids. We had single people live, living with us. And there were two ba uh, bathrooms on the second floor side by each. And the one, the one bathroom that was connected to our bedroom had four doors in it. So think about your own bathroom at home. You've got a normal bathroom. Usually just one door into the bathroom, same door out of the bathroom, right? <laughs> this bathroom had four doors. There was a sliding door that connected it to the, to the bedroom. To the left of that was a door for a built-in closet. Behind that was the door to the hallway. And then there was a door to the next bathroom that it was next to. So it's the middle of the night. And I had taken two Benadryl because I was having difficulty sleeping. <laughs> and I woke up in the middle of the night because I had to use the bathroom. And I stumbled into there and I, I did my business. And then I, I came out and only I, I must have come out the wrong door because it wasn't my bedroom. I, you know, I was in that state where I didn't want to wake myself up. I wanted to like stay asleep, but I needed to get back to bed. And so I was literally bumping around in the bathroom. I tried every single door. I tried to walk into the closet. I walked into the other bathroom. That was extraordinarily confusing to me, <laughs> to be in the other bathroom. And at a certain point, I was, I was just so bereft. I literally, if this was the, the counter, you know, the counter for the, the vanity, the sink, and the nice long modern bathroom, I literally went like this and tried to lie on the counter <laughs> as if it were my bed. Hopefully for someone to come and rescue me. Yes, I got lost in my own bathroom. <laughs> and we laugh at ourselves when we do that sort of thing. It's not like some great moral horror story when we go astray. We, we lose focus. We get distracted. We're focusing on something else. We, we go astray and then we find that we are lost sheep. And he says, he says, seek out your servant. Like, hey, come, look for me. Not like punish your servant, but seek out, search for your servant. And then I love this, for I do not forget your commandments. Now, if you understand this verse in context, the straying is straying from the commandments. This was a trope in, in Jewish thought. The, the, the person who is straying, and we see this in Psalm 1, is straying from the commandments of God, which is how to live well. But the, the lost psalmist who strayed from the commandment, he still cares about living well. So he reminds God, that he still cares about living well. And this caring about living well actually counts with God. The caring counts. And so this, I think, is a, is a very healthy, powerful picture of the kind of humility that we see in the 12 steps. Humility isn't turning against ourselves, but it's facing our reality, whatever that reality is. Humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings Step eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. So Gretchen did a great job of unpacking this, and I'm going to step back from it a little further. Um, 
the 12 steps is a spirituality of noticing things about yourself. Like Buddhism is a spirituality of noticing things, of becoming aware of yourself. Like the trick in Buddhism is to learn how to like just notice your emotions and notice your distress and just to, to like step outside of yourself and not simply be in your emotions, but to just notice your emotions, become aware of what you're feeling. And the 12 steps is a spirituality of noticing things about ourselves dispassionately at first. So it, this is not a, like a tighten up, you know, tighten up the screws. It's not that browbeating move, but it's a simple act of awareness facing our real selves. In step four, we write down the character flaws, things that make us miserable and the people around us miserable. Step eight, we make a list of all persons we've harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. So. I would submit that this is actually a process of um, relaxing into God. James Allison, a gay a Catholic theologian who's, who's a real Jesus freak, I love this guy. Um, he talks about faith as a relaxing into God. And in particular in this step, we're, we're relaxing into God's love for us and for the people around us. We're just moving into that mindset of God who loves us and God who loves the people around us and wants the best for all of us. And then as we do this, we're not berating ourselves, we're not clenching our fists, but we're relaxing into God. We will, over time, become willing to make amends for them all. All of those things we did to harm others. Remember, um, as a one-step-at-a-time spirituality, we can only go as fast as our turtle selves allow us. You know? Like, we can only go as fast as our turtle selves will allow us. You know, the thing about God is God has a lot of time. And God always accommodates to human beings because he wants to be in relationship with us. He'd blow past us at a moment's notice if he didn't constantly condescend, accommodate to our nature. So God has time and he takes time with us. But God doesn't rush to meet our timetable. He deals with us according to our capacities to respond to him. And sometimes that's slow. So, you know, the way it works is eventually when we're done blaming ourselves, when we're off the shame merry-go-round, we find there's actually hope in this word amends. And we want to make amends. But that takes time, coming to that point. Uh, our, our founding fathers, they were all fathers, wrote our constitution. And like all documents, it included some original flaws. Like only land-owning white men can vote. Um, only white people, and as Julia reminded me, white men primarily, are persons in our Constitution with full rights under the law. And we would just have to say the U.S. Constitution was originally a racist document steeped in white supremacy. Our Constitution, oh praise us. Um, <laughs> 
but there was a provision in the Constitution to make amendments to the Constitution. The founding fathers knew that they, like, they were blind. They, couldn't, they were blind to things they didn't know what they were blind to, and future generations would have to amend this Constitution. And so these wrongs were started to be amended through two constitutional amendments, uh, the 13th and the 19th Amendments. Um, so I do writing uh, in addition to pastoring, and all writing is editing. All writing is getting something down that's crappy at first, and then amending it, and correcting it, and improving it. Uh, 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 writing is all about progress, not perfection. You're only as good a writer as you are an amender. So I was re reading recently about the big book, on the, the original um, um, version of the big book, or the, like the original copy of the big book, the big book of AA, which was written mostly by Bill W. Uh, it was discovered uh, recently, and it was sold to someone for like $14 million, I think. It's like, this is, a, this is an important book in the Western tradition. And um, they're talking a little bit about how the book, big book came into being, and it turns out that Bill W. had the wisdom to like ask his friends to read different versions of the book as he was working it along to get some input on editing it. And it was one of his friends that was responsible for the suggestion that was like the, the deep spiritual power of the big book, which was taking out all the you language. You should do this, the lecturing language, the here's how to get yourself sober, alcoholic, fellow alcoholic, here's how you do it, the wagging finger language, and that was all completely replaced with we language. And the difference is just like striking. You take out all the use and you insert we's. I, I do that often when I'm writing my notes. I start off you, and I'm talking to you, and I'm like you, and then I think better of it, I'm like, no, we. And, and it changes the tone entirely. That was a significant, like, late edit in the big book that was done. So everything human is a work in progress, especially our lives. Uh, um, our genetic material, apparently, is constantly in need of repair. Like, you know, I don't know, ultraviolet rays, chemicals, who knows, the neutrinos that are streaming through us from wherever do damage all the time to our ge genetic material. So our genetic material is just constantly degrading, but there's little repair mechanisms that are constantly keeping up with the degradation. It's just like in the nature of the human to be a work in progress. Health is not perfection, but it's making amends, literally. So in this step, we settle into the idea that perfection is not a human trait, that we are human, that only God is perfect. That was one of our songs this morning. We are human. We stand between the dirt and the divine. Amends will be necessary given our humanity. Good news. There's something we can do. And that's all this step is, as Gretchen pointed out. Just relaxing into that awareness for an entire step until we become willing to make amends. Let us do as the psalmist say, a selah, a pause. That step is done. Step nine, the next step. May direct amends to such people wherever possible, uh, except when to do so would it injure them or others. 
I would like to close this um, um, sermon by demonstrating how possible amends are, how beautiful they can be, and how they can be part of bringing a new world into being. And I'm, I'm going big scale here. So we, this church, Blue Ocean Faith, I would say we are beautiful in a, in a human way, in the way that only humans can be beautiful. We are beautiful in a human way. But that doesn't mean perfect, but beautiful and beautiful as a result of this step, making amends. We are an amend church. Amen? Amen. Like we are an amend. We're an attempt to make an amendment to the constitution of Christianity. Jesus himself said, I'm not going to give you all the truth. You can't bear it now. But the Spirit, when the Spirit comes, the Spirit will lead you into all truth. There will be an ongoing process of revelation and amendments in the tradition that Jesus himself knew it, that further generations of disciples will be coming into truths that the original disciples could not grasp because of their placement in time and space and history, their humanity. They were rooted in their context and couldn't escape it. So, first of all, let me just stress that we are beautiful for a moment. Um, and I refer not to our astonishingly excellent music announcements and preaching, but um, I refer to our occasional effect on people. You know, if you're an organization and you can occasionally have like just a great effect on people, that is just an awesome thing. Um, this is from one of the serendipity doodah moms. Um, who, who tunes in uh, on Sunday, and she sent this in the Facebook group. She said, Blue Ocean has really helped me to start to rebuild my relationship with God. I'm not ready to walk back into a church building, but I can watch your services and get something out of each one. It makes a difference to me. Thank you. you know, this is a mom who has a gay, gay child. And you can imagine the brokenheartedness of a mother who has a gay child and the church that she loves has rejected that child. And perhaps that she herself has participated in the thinking that was so harmful to her child. Can you imagine how that might break a mother's heart? This mother has a broken heart of that sort. And it's, such a, it's difficult. She can't bring herself into a church building of the Lord she loves. That's hard. And she's saying, well, you're, you're like, you're helping me. I want to get there. You're helping me on that path. That's a beautiful thing. One young man told me recently after coming out to his conservative parents, and they were crushed, and they were disappointed in him. And he was just saying, this is who I am. And he's a great guy if you know him. And I told him when he told me the story, I was just like, I am so sorry. I just wanted, like, on behalf of the Father's Union, I just wanted to say, I am so sorry. That's just, you deserve so much better than that. And he looked at him, he says, yeah. It's like, it was almost like he was saying, chill. <laughs> like, I'm okay. He said, but the fact that Blue Ocean exists and that so many people paid a social cost for creating this church you know, it sent a powerful message to me as a gay man. And, and I said, well, what was the message? 
And he said, well, that I'm valuable. That I'm not a piece of junk. And I'm like, oh my God, that's just the, that's the most beautiful thing anyone has said to me about the church. And it's a direct result of our going through the process together of making amends. I mean, how many of us is, have practiced a form of Christianity that like the U.S. Constitution was just flawed in spots, but those flaws were hidden. They were hidden to us. They were hidden to our peers until God revealed them. And we faced them and we were given the willingness to make amendments to our Constitution. This is a beautiful honor and a beautiful gift that we're participating in. You know, in my own case, in my role as a pastor, you know, you may like me now, or not. But, you know, there were some earlier versions of me that you would say, oh my God. I lived within the original flaws of our received tradition. In my 30s, I, I bought or went along with the notion that women had different roles than men. And that meant because of these different roles, men couldn't be pastors, what I was. And, you know, that same-sex attraction was a disorder. And these beliefs that I held um, absolutely were harmful to the children of God. The thing is, you can only make amends after a sometimes long process of, like, opening up your heart to God, taking inventory, becoming willing, noticing the harm done to others. I mean, vast segments of the Christian tradition just don't yet see the harm being done. And it's, it's, it's ignorance. It's what we're all in, a state of ignorance. We just don't know what we're ignorant of by definition. And the church is the same as we are because the church is a human thing. So... Um, Making amends is a key step in the recovery of the alcoholic, as uh, Gretchen pointed out. It's like the justice step. But the actual doing of the amends is step nine of 12 steps. It's step nine of 12 steps. In order to get to the repair part, you have to take these eight other steps that take time and help and a fellowship and a mentor, a sponsor and all of that. And then, toward the end, you can make amends. To make amends is to face regrets and to have regrets is to be human. Progress, not perfection, is the motto in AA. Progress, not perfection. So after my change of heart on LGBT came, became public, I got a Facebook message um, thanking me from a gay man that I had pastored in my 20s. Um, I was suffering from the scourge of the 20s, which is presumed certainty, you know. <laughs> you know, your task in your teenage years and your 20s is to establish mastery. You have to master life in order to, like, function as a human being. And so naturally, you stumble in that process into presumed certainty, and that's where you make the mistakes that you start to make amends for in your 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. <laughs> you know, that, that was kind of hard to get that Facebook message because I remembered him and I had forgotten 
about my pastoral care of this young, then young man back when I was in my 20s. And I had to face the fact that, oh, I had not served him well. I had added to his misery. I had done nothing to lift a finger to relieve his misery. I'd made it worse. And I realized, you know, I couldn't go back in time. I couldn't fix that. But the effort that went into my change was like my amend for him. And he was gracious enough to thank me for it. So we're not God. We can't save. We can't redeem. We can't rescue. We can't reconcile all things. We can't even clean up all of our own messes. That's just a part of the reality of our humanity. But we can, as we're given the light and willingness to do so, we can make amends. And when we do that, we participate in the beauty of being human. Progress, not perfection. Um, quiet reflection. By the way, I just want to throw this in. I think one of the great amends that white people could make for the... Um, generations and generations of slaves is like put a black person that you know into your will like if you're giving your money away to four people or whatever just add a fifth and have it be a person of color whose family system has probably never had an inheritance you know most of the wealth in any nation is generated by inheritance is passed there's a lot of money flowing around and a lot of people dying at the same time and once they die they don't take their money with them it flows and so, you know, vast majority of the inheritance wealth is just passed on from white person to white person to white person. I don't think the United States political system is ever going to, like, establish reparations in our lifetime, but we could establish reparations, and it would just be a simple amends. That I have so many advantages as a white person. Why don't I have a person of color that I know and put them in, in my will? Why not? That's just a thought. Justice is step. Nine. Okay. I, I got that from Gretchen. I just put that in. Okay. Quiet reflection. We're, we're reflecting quietly on our AA mottos. And this one is progress, not perfection. So get yourself comfortable. And just a few thoughts. Um, when we get distracted from our awareness of God, we fill the God void with ourselves and we assume the posture of control, we lose serenity, and we often succumb to the illusion of perfection. Not that we are perfect, we know that, but that we ought to be. And we're ashamed that we're not. We think in terms of success or failure, not in terms of progress, of editing our lives, of making amends. The path to restored sanity is found in the slogan, progress, not perfection. If life is a journey, not a performance, then our motto is progress, not perfection. So three steps in this meditation. First, for maybe 30 seconds or so, call to mind a wise person in your life, hopefully, or you could make one up, a wise, kind person. Maybe it was a coach or a really good boss or a teacher, or a friend, or a counselor. And just listen to that person in your imagination saying to you, progress, not perfection. Put the motto in the, friend, in the voice of your friend, your wise person, and receive 
this message from that person for about 30 seconds. Progress, not perfection. Okay, now let's shift gears and call to mind, like in your imagination, your best version of God as you understand God. And picture that God saying to you, progress, not perfection. 30 seconds. the third piece of this exercise just picture the kindest and wisest version of yourself saying to the rest of yourself progress not perfection listen to that for 30 seconds Shall we say it together? Progress, not perfection. <laughs> 